Psalm 31 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Treasury of David, Volume 2, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm 31, Part 1. Title To the Chief Musician, A Psalm of David. The dedication to the chief musician proves that this song of mingled measures and alternate strains of grief and woe was intended for public singing, and thus a death-blow is given to the notion that nothing but praise should be sung. Perhaps the psalms, thus marked, might have been set aside as too mournful for temple worship, if special care had not been taken by the Holy Spirit to indicate them as being designed for the public edification of the Lord's people. May there not also be in psalms thus designated a peculiarly distinct reference to the Lord Jesus? He certainly manifests himself very clearly in the twenty-second, which bears this title, and in the one before us we plainly hear his dying voice in the fifth verse. Jesus is chief everywhere, and in all the holy songs of his saints he is the chief musician. The surmises that Jeremiah penned this psalm need no other answer than the fact that it is a psalm of David. Subject. The psalmist in dire affliction appeals to his God for help with much confidence and holy importunity, and ere long finds his mind so strengthened that he magnifies the Lord for his great goodness. Some have thought that the occasion in his troubled life which led to this psalm was the treachery of the men of Kila, and we have felt much inclined to this conjecture, but after reflection it seems to us that its very mournful tone and its allusion to his iniquity demand a later date, and it may be more satisfactory to illustrate it by the period when Absalom had rebelled, and his courtiers were fled from him, while lying lips spread a thousand malicious rumors against him. It is perhaps quite as well that we have no settled season mentioned, or we might have been so busy in applying it to David's case as to forget its suitability to our own. Division. There are no great lines of demarcation. Throughout the strain undulates, falling into valleys of mourning, and rising with hills of confidence. However, we may, for convenience, arrange it thus. David testifying his confidence in God pleads for help, verses 1 to 6, expresses gratitude for mercies received, 7 and 8, particularly describes his case, verses 9 to 13, vehemently pleads for deliverance, 14 to 18, confidently and thankfully expects a blessing, 19 to 22, and closes by showing the bearing of his case upon all the people of God. Exposition, verses 1 to 6. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me, and deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for a house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, 
O Lord God of truth! I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. Verse 1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Nowhere else do I fly for shelter, let the tempest howl as it may. The psalmist has one refuge, and that the best one. He casts out the great sheet-anchor of his faith in the time of storm. Let other things be doubtful, yet the fact that he relies upon Jehovah, David lays down most positively, and he begins with it, lest by the stress of trial he should afterwards forget it. This avowal of faith is the fulcrum by means of which he labors to uplift and remove his trouble. He dwells upon it as a comfort to himself and a plea with God. No mention is made of merit, but faith relies upon divine favor and faithfulness, and upon that alone. Let me never be ashamed. How can the Lord permit the man to be ultimately put to shame who depends alone upon him? This would not be dealing like a God of truth and grace. It would bring dishonor upon God himself if faith were not in the end rewarded. It will be an ill day indeed for religion when trust in God brings no consolation and no assistance. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Thou art not unjust to desert a trustful soul or to break thy promises. Thou wilt vindicate the righteousness of thy mysterious providence and give me joyful deliverance. Faith dares to look even to the sword of justice for protection. While God is righteous, faith will not be left to be proved futile and fanatical. How sweetly the declaration of faith in this first verse sounds if we read it at the foot of the cross, beholding the promise of the Father as yea and amen through the Son, viewing God with faith's eye as he stands revealed in Jesus crucified. Verse 2. Bow down thine ear to me. Condescend to my low estate. Listen to me attentively as one who would hear every word. Heaven, with its transcendent glories of harmony, might well engross the divine ear. But yet the Lord has an hourly regard to the weakest moanings of his poorest people. Deliver me speedily. We must not set times and seasons, yet in submission we may ask for swift as well as sure mercy. God's mercies are often enhanced in value by the timely haste which he uses in their bestowal. If they came late, they might be too late, but he rides upon a cherub and flies upon the wings of the wind when he intends the good of his beloved. Be thou my strong rock. Be my Engedi, my Adullam, my immutable, immovable, impregnable, sublime resort. For a house of defense to save me, wherein I may dwell in safety, not merely running to thee for temporary shelter, but abiding in thee for eternal salvation. How very simply does the good man pray, and yet with what weight of meaning. He uses no ornamental flourishes. He is too deeply in earnest to be otherwise than plain. It were well if all who engage in public prayer would observe the same rule. Verse 3. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Here the tried soul 
avows yet again its full confidence in God. Faith's repetitions are not vain. The avowal of our reliance upon God in times of adversity is a principal method of glorifying Him. Active service is good, but the passive confidence of faith is not one jot less esteemed in the sight of God. The words before us appear to embrace and fasten upon the Lord with a fiducial grip, which is not to be relaxed. The two personal pronouns, like sure nails, lay hold upon the faithfulness of the Lord. Oh, for grace to have our heart fixed in firm, unstaggering belief in God. The figure of a rock and a fortress may be illustrated to us in these times by the vast fortress of Gibraltar, often besieged by our enemies, but never wrested from us. Ancient strongholds, though far from impregnable by our modes of warfare, were equally important in those remoter ages, when in the mountain fastnesses feeble bands felt themselves to be secure. Note the singular fact that David asked the Lord to be his rock, verse 2, because he was his rock, and learn from it that we may pray to enjoy in experience what we grasp by faith. Faith is the foundation of prayer. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. The psalmist argues like a logician with his fors and therefores, since I do sincerely trust thee, saith he, O my God, be my director. To lead and to guide are two things very like each other, but patient thought will detect different shades of meaning, especially as the last may mean provide for me. The double word indicates an urgent need. We require double direction, for we are fools, and the way is rough. Lead me as a soldier, guide me as a traveler. Lead me as a babe, guide me as a man. Lead me when thou art with me, but guide me even if thou be absent. Lead me by thy hand, guide me by thy word. The argument used is one which is fetched from the armory of free grace, not for my own sake, but for thy name's sake, guide me. Our appeal is not to any fancied virtue in our own names, but to the glorious goodness and graciousness which shine resplendent in the character of Israel's God. It is not possible that the Lord should suffer his own honor to be tarnished, but this would certainly be the case if those who trusted him should perish. This was Moses's plea. What wilt thou do unto thy great name? Verse 4 Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me. The enemies of David were cunning as well as mighty. If they could not conquer him by power, they would capture him by craft. Our own spiritual foes are of the same order. They are of the serpent's brood, and seek to ensnare us by their guile. The prayer before us supposes the possibility of the believer being caught like a bird, and indeed we are so foolish that this often happens. So deftly does the fowler do his work that simple ones are soon surrounded by it. The text asks that even out of the meshes of the net the captive one may be delivered, and this is a proper petition, and one which can be granted. From between the jaws of the lion and out of the belly of hell can eternal love rescue the saint. It may need a sharp pull to save a soul from the net of temptation, 
and a mighty pull to extricate a man from the snares of malicious cunning, but the Lord is equal to every emergency, and the most skillfully placed nets of the hunter shall never be able to hold his chosen ones. Woe unto those who are so clever at net-laying! They who tempt others shall be destroyed themselves. Villains who lay traps in secret shall be punished in public. For thou art my strength. What an inexpressible sweetness is to be found in these few words. How joyfully we may enter upon labors, and how cheerfully may we endure sufferings, when we can lay hold upon celestial power. Divine power will rend asunder all the toils of the foe, confound their politics, and frustrate their knavish tricks. He is a happy man who has such matchless might engaged upon his side. Our own strength would be of little service when embarrassed in the nets of base cunning, but the Lord's strength is ever available. We have but to invoke it, and we shall find it near at hand. If by faith we are depending alone upon the strength of the strong God of Israel, we may use our holy reliance as a plea in supplication. Verse 5. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. These living words of David were our Lord's dying words, and have been frequently used by holy men in their hour of departure. Be assured that they are good, choice, wise, and solemn words. We may use them now and in the last tremendous hour. Observe, the object of the good man's solicitude in life and death is not his body or his estate, but his spirit. This is his jewel, his secret treasure. If this be safe, all is well. See what he does with his pearl. He commits it to the hand of his God. It came from him. It is his own. He has aforetime sustained it. He is able to keep it and it is most fit that he should receive it. All things are safe in Jehovah's hands. What we entrust to the Lord will be secure, both now and in that day of days towards which we are hastening. Without reservation the good man yields himself to his heavenly Father's hands. It is enough for him to be there. It is peaceful living and glorious dying to repose in the care of heaven. At all times we should commit, and continue to commit, our all to Jesus's sacred care. Then, though life may hang on a thread, and adversities may multiply as the sands of the sea, our soul shall dwell at ease, and delight itself in quiet resting places. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Redemption is a solid basis for confidence. David had not known Calvary as we have done, but temporal redemption cheered him, and shall not eternal redemption yet more sweetly console us? Past deliverances are strong pleas for present assistance. What the Lord has done, he will do again, for he changes not. He is a God of veracity, faithful to his promises, and gracious to his saints. He will not turn away from his people. Verse 6. I have hated them that regard lying vanities. Those who will not lean upon the true arm of strength are sure to make to themselves vain confidences. Man must have a God, and if he will not adore the only living and true God, he makes a fool of himself, and pays superstitious regard to a lie, and waits with anxious hope upon a base delusion. 
Those who did this were none of David's friends. He had a constant dislike of them. The verb includes the present as well as the past tense. He hated them for hating God. He would not endure the presence of idolaters. His heart was set against them for their stupidity and weakness. He had no patience with their superstitious observances, and calls their idols vanities of emptiness, nothings of nonentity. Small courtesy is more than Romanists and Puseyists deserve for their fooleries. Men who make gods of their riches, their persons, their wits, or anything else, are to be shunned by those whose faith rests upon God in Christ Jesus, and so far from being envied, they are to be pitied as depending upon utter vanities. But I trust in the Lord. This might be very unfashionable, but the psalmist dared to be singular. Bad example should not make us less decided for the truth, but the rather in the midst of general defection we should grow the more bold. This adherence to his trust in Jehovah is the great plea employed all along. The troubled one flies into the arms of his God and ventures everything upon the divine faithfulness. Verses 7 and 8 I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities, and hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Verse 7 I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. For mercy past he is grateful, and for mercy future, which he believingly anticipates, he is joyful. In our most importunate intercessions, we must find breathing time to bless the Lord. Praise is never a hindrance to prayer, but rather a lively refreshment therein. It is delightful at intervals to hear the notes of the high-sounding cymbals when the dolorous sackbut rules the hour. Those two words, glad and rejoice, are an instructive reduplication. We need not stint ourselves in our holy triumph. This wine we may drink in bowls without fear of excess. For thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast seen it, weighed it, directed it, fixed a bound to it, and in all ways made it a matter of tender consideration. A man's consideration means the full exercise of his mind. What must God's consideration be? Thou hast known my soul in adversities. God owns his saints when others are ashamed to acknowledge them. He never refuses to know his friends. He thinks not the worse of them for their rags and tatters. He does not misjudge them and cast them off when their faces are lean with sickness or their hearts heavy with despondency. Moreover, the Lord Jesus knows us in our pangs in a peculiar sense, by having a deep sympathy towards us in them all. When no others can enter into our griefs, from want of understanding them experimentally, Jesus dives into the lowest depths with us, comprehending the direst of our woes, because he has felt the same. Jesus is a physician who knows every case. Nothing is new to him. When we are so bewildered as to not know our own state, he knows us altogether. He has known us and will know us. Oh, for grace to know more of him. Man, know thyself, is a good philosophic precept, but man, thou art known of God, is a superlative consolation. Adversities, 
in the plural, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Verse 8. And hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. To be shut up in one's hand is to be delivered over absolutely to his power. Now, the believer is not in the hand of death or the devil, much less is he in the power of man. The enemy may get a temporary advantage over us, but we are like men in prison with the door open. God will not let us be shut up. He always provides a way of escape. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Blessed be God for liberty. Civil liberty is valuable. Religious liberty is precious. Spiritual liberty is priceless. In all troubles we may praise God if these are left. Many saints have had their greatest enlargements of soul when their affairs have been in the greatest straits. Their souls have been in a large room when their bodies have been lying in Bonner's coal hole or in some other narrow dungeon. Grace has been equal to every emergency, and more than that, it has made the emergency an opportunity for displaying itself. End of part one of Psalm 31